And we're still in the book of Mark. Shock, isn't it? I'm sure that's a surprise to you. We're making our way slowly but steadily through this book, taking a good deep dive into Mark's action-packed gospel. Let me begin this look at uh, a section of Scripture that's going to have to be broken into two parts. Another shock. We've done that a lot lately because there's the confrontation between Jesus and some religious leaders. That's the first section of this passage. And then there's these wonderful times when Jesus gets with his disciples when they go away afterwards and they go, um, Jesus, that's a really good teaching. Uh, what does it mean again? <laughs> so they have to ask him for clarification. It happens a number of times, and I'm grateful for that because I'm the guy who's scared to raise his hand and say, teacher, can you repeat that? I didn't catch it. So I'm grateful that we have disciples who actually do that because if we don't catch it the first time, we need to have it explained as well. So we're going to do that next week. We're going to go even deeper with his explanation. But to set the stage for this, a young man in church is sitting close to the back row with his sweet family. They have a little daughter, and the daughter is placed strategically between the mom and the dad. You know what that's like. In my day, my mom would rip a piece of gum in half and give half to my sister and half to me. And that was supposed to give us something busy, you know, with our mouths so that we wouldn't be chattering during the message. And so they had this little girl sitting there, and the pastor asked them to turn in whatever form they have a Bible with them. Well, you know what it's like today. The phones come out because you've got multiple translations in the palm of your hand, literally. So this dad, being a good dad, gets his phone out. And the sermon's going well, and it appears from everybody on the outside looking at this back row that this guy's intently following along with the passage, and he's really into God's Word. And then his daughter starts to get a little bit restless, as preschoolers are wont to do. And she wanted to lean over, as preschoolers will do, and wanted to grab a hold of his arm and snuggle up to him. But when she did, she bumped the dad's hand, and his phone fell to the floor. And his wife, of course, not wanting a distraction, darted her eyes down to the source of the sound, and then she looked back and shot him one of those looks because she saw that his phone was open to a specific app that was giving play-by-play -play action on the Detroit Lions NFL football game. Bum, bum, bum. Sometimes, the point of this crazy story is sometimes we may be doing things that if other people were to look at us doing those things, we would appear outwardly very religious and very pious. And yet, it could be kind of a facade, a cover for something that's going on that's not quite so pious after all. And that sort of sets up what we're looking at today about the confrontation. Now, because this is a study through God's Word, we need to read the passage and so I'm going to do that for us. It's Mark 7, 1 through 15. And that way we can get a feel for that. And then I'm going to start pulling out a few things that I think are really important. And we're going to see, I believe, that some of the things that look like they might have been ancient and that happened a long time ago, really applicable. And they're applicable to us today. So I'm starting, I'm reading in the NLT version today, starting again at uh, chapter 7 with verse 1. One day, some Pharisees and teachers of the law, a.k.a. scribes, in many of your translations, arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual, the ceremonial hand-washing, before eating. And then Mark puts in parentheses for his Gentile audience, 
The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many translations or traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, "Um, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. Uh, Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. And then he said, You skillfully sidestep or set aside God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God, honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, it's all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. That was a practice they called Corban, and some of your translations have that. Verse 12, in this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. And then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. All of you, listen and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you, you're defiled by what comes from your heart. Let's pray together. Father, this is another passage where it starts to become difficult to understand why Jesus would appear so angry. And I pray that you'll open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, to see why he was upset and what he's trying to institute as he brings a new covenant into the world, a kingdom that has a whole different set of principles. It's a fulfillment of everything that was prophesied and predicted about him, and yet, to some, it appears that he's a real rebel. So I pray that you'll open us up to what he has for each of us personally today, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's kind of a theme here, I think, and we're starting to see this separation between tradition, a tradition of man, and scripture. And I think that could be kind of what you could write in the margin as an overarching umbrella theme for this specific passage. Do you think that it's possible even today for some people to observe outwardly certain religious things that might not necessarily be pleasing to God? I certainly think that's true. I think there are a lot of things that people wind up doing just because they do it because that's the way we've always done it before and they don't even think about it and they might be having a heart filled with all kinds of trash at the time that they say they're worshiping God outwardly and outwardly it appears that they are. So this is one of the things Jesus is starting to address is the heart condition of somebody as they're drawing close to God rather than mere outward observances. Let's look at some of the specifics. First verse, verse 1. One day some Pharisees and teachers of the religious law, a.k.a. scribes, arrived from Jerusalem 
to see Jesus. Now, these leaders were from Jerusalem. Why would they show up? Well, it's certainly not to find out how they can join his movement. <laughs> we see in a couple of other instances already in Mark, when the, the Pharisees and the scribes show up, that's not necessarily a good thing. That's almost like getting a visit from the IRS. <laughs> not something you really want to have somebody knocking at your door and flashing his badge. When the Pharisees and the scribes or the Sadducees start to show up, they're actually there on a mission, and they're trying to get some dirt on Jesus, basically, so that they can discredit him. And why would Mark say that they were from Jerusalem? Why is that important? Well, it was important because, let's say in politics today, if we had some politicians that came from Ann Arbor or Ypsilanti and visited one of our services, we might think, oh, that's nice. But if we had a contingent from Washington, D.C., for example, we might think, uh-oh, they're sending in the heavy hitters. And so in Jewish religious culture, these were the heavy hitters. These would be like the Washington, D.C. contingent. And they're coming because they're really checking this rabbi out to see if he cuts the mustard. Now, verse 2, they noticed that some of the disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual. It was a ceremonial cleansing, and Mark makes it abundantly clear that they're not talking about just good hygiene practices here. They're not just washing their hands for dinner. This is something that goes all the way back years earlier, and it had become a religious ritual. He says in verse 3, the Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they poured water over their cupped hands. And I went into a website about Jewish traditions and found about some of that. And to read about it, you would think that it would be a surgeon getting ready to go in for surgery. You have to pour the water this way, this much, in this angle, hold your hands up, let the water drip off of your elbows. You expect to see these people putting on rubber gloves before they can eat. I mean, it's really an involved process. So it's a whole lot more than just washing your hands. Similarly, they don't eat anything from the market until they immerse their hands in water. And this is but one of many traditions that they have clung to. Mark is making it abundantly clear that this is not just one example. And even Jesus had said that. There's a whole bunch of these things that they were clinging to. So you get the picture that there are some people here who have just become rigid in their religious practices. And they're upset with you if you don't do that one thing right. Because that's the way we've always done it before. There was a good book that I read 40 years ago by Ralph Neighbor Jr. It's called The Seven Last Words of the Church. You know what the seven last words are? We've always done it that way. <laughs> Is that seven? Okay. And I think sometimes it can be that way. I have gotten in trouble. I remember one time, uh, I told you about this years ago, I wound up going to the fellowship hall in a previous church that I served in, and we had moved the pulpit for Vacation Bible School that week because we put up a puppet theater, and we had puppet shows for the kids. And the kids were just thrilled with that, and they were leaning in and listening to every word. So we thought, well, let's do the puppet show on Sunday to show people what we've been doing through the week. So let's leave the pulpit in the fellowship hall. And I got there on Monday after that, and there was a note taped on there, hastily scrawled, with some colorful words written about that. What is this blankety-blank doing here in the fellowship hall? So I had a very interesting conversation. It was very interesting how we started talking about uh, things that might be traditions of man versus things that are actually scriptural, because I couldn't find that passage that said, you must have the pulpit. That was interesting. It showed me that all of us can get really prescribed with certain things that we think have to happen. And we've had people who come from very liturgical church experiences. I don't disparage those. We can learn some things from some of our brethren in other churches. But they come to 
a raucous, rowdy Baptist church meeting where people are standing and some people actually raise their hands above their shoulders when they're singing and stuff. And it's a little scary to them because it feels uncontrolled. And they've told me that. They said, I've got to say that it, I, there are a lot of good things about the service. Don't get me wrong, but I, I just didn't quite know that I was going to be in for that. I think it's because they get used to a religious habit and there is familiarity that feels good because you're doing those familiar things each time. Is it possible for us, even with our raucous Baptistisms, to get into a rut and do the same thing each time? Of course it is. <laughs> We're not raucous. We're, I know some churches I've been to that are 33% more raucous than we are. <laughs> in fact, this is not in my notes, but it's fun. When I was in Phoenix, I was a minister of music when I was going to college, and we had this wonderful get-together with several churches in our area, and it was a fundraiser. So people gave a, a love offering at the end, and we were giving it to some really good cause, kind of like the Hope Clinic is for us in Ipsy. And so they had different performers from different churches and musicians so that we had a concert. And we each had three songs, and they were going to be fun. And I, I picked out my most raucous, cool, rocking out bluesy songs, you know. Um, and I, I mean, I, I brought it. And then this African-American gentleman came up and grabbed me in a bear hug and shook me up, you know. And, and then he said, that's a good start. <laughs> and then it ramped up from there. And so, yes, there, there are a lot of differences in different worship styles. And what we can do is we can start putting all of our stock in the style or the specific songs or which hymnal you bring it from or are we using the overhead projector or are we reading out of the books. All that stuff has continued to play into today's differences in what we think is acceptable or not. And I, so I think this is just as effective for us today to read this passage into 2022 culture because God still wants us to be drawn into his heart and not just stuck on tradition of man. So then there's a big question in this confrontation. Verse 5, why don't your disciples follow our age-old traditions? They eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony. I found it interesting that they asked about his disciples instead of confronting him with that. Isn't that interesting? And they were really looking for something to find at fault. Isn't that true today? You know, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to even use the word politics in my sermon today, but I just used it. <laughs> because don't we see today that if somebody wants to discredit somebody else because they have a different opinion, instead of uh, camping out on the facts or the truth, they just go on the attack. And they try to find fault with the other person. And that's what we see, you know, you just look at the TV and all the politicians ads these days there's no real platform you can't find out what these people stand for they're just attacking each other and that's kind of what the Pharisees and Sadducees and the scribes were doing for Jesus and his disciples they were looking for something to tear apart forgive me for using politics in my message all right now that's a true principle and it's something again that as I start thinking oh I never do that though do I and then God reminds me of something that I was thinking in my mind that I wanted to say in a certain conversation two days earlier, and I think, okay, yeah, I guess I am capable of doing that myself. And so rather than just camping out on the truth of a matter and trying to solve the issue, I'm, I'm actually wanting to go on the attack. And so God convicts me through his Holy Spirit. And he says, draw close to me. 
Let me transform you through my spirit so that my character is what's guiding these conversations. Well, when there are truth seekers, they're starting to feel drawn toward Christ. They may also have a tug of war within them. And so they may want excuses to discount Christianity. I think that's why we see such a pushback today from skeptics. And there are more websites out there that you can find anything you want to find of people that are saying, well, this is wrong and that's wrong and this is why that's wrong. It's just abundant these days. So one of the most difficult spiritual battlefields right now where a true jihad takes place is in the heart of somebody who's starting to feel drawn to the heart of God. It's a battlefield. So why the challenge? Why did these guys want to challenge so much? One reason was just what we see today. They're the old guard. It's true in a lot of organizations, but especially religious ones. I'll give you an example. I've seen this happen. A guy comes fresh out of seminary. He's got great ideas. He's been studying the Bible. He's going to set the world on fire. This looks like a job for pulpit men. And he's going to really push back against all the status quo, and he's going to try to become the new person who's really putting in a first century A.D. kind of New Testament church, and we're going to throw out all those old traditions. Fast forward 30 years into that guy's ministry, and pretty soon he is camping out. Well, the way we used to do it is the right way. And he's become the old guard because he's gotten entrenched in methodology instead of going with what he said when he first came out of seminary by saying, we're going to adjust our methods even though the message will always be the same. And yet he starts camping out on trying to maintain the method. It happens. It happens to all of us. Well, religious leaders challenge these disciples. And I asked a couple of questions because if we're trying to observe carefully in this observation, interpretation, application style of study, we have to ask, why did he not attack Jesus first? Was it because Jesus wasn't doing those things or they got there late and didn't see him do those things? So they thought, I'm just going to go with the evidence. And because we saw the disciples with our own eyes, we're going to attack them because I did see it and I know that that's evidence. Or was it because they knew he was protective because he was their shepherd and he, they would get his goat if they started attacking the sheep instead. I have a good answer for you. I don't know. I don't have any idea. I tried to find some. I looked it up. I looked at other commentators. They don't know either. They kind of tiptoe around the, the, uh, the issue. But what I do know is that Jesus was constantly pushing back, and whether he was attacking the disciples or not, I suspect it had something to do with the fact that they thought this is almost like a sin of omission on this rabbi's part. Because if they had, I could just hear a Pharisee asking this kind of question in his mind. If he were a real rabbi like us, then wouldn't he be reprimanding those guys for not following through on our ancient traditions? And if he's not calling them out on that, then it's almost like he's tacitly accepting their behavior. Can you feel that? I, you know, I've, I've felt that on occasion in different issues. I could see them going that route. So we don't know for sure, but what we do know is Jesus was sometimes touching things that would make people unclean, and it would have made him unclean. We saw that in the very first chapter of Mark. Man with leprosy, but Jesus had compassion on him. Weren't supposed to touch him. Unclean. But he touches the leper and he heals them completely. And so suddenly this man is not unclean any longer. And Jesus who touched him is not unclean either. Just by the fact he touched him. That goes against everything that the Pharisees and Sadducees had been teaching about cleanliness. Because they turned outward cleanliness into an equation with what should be going on in the heart. So what we see is when Jesus is involved and he touches somebody, that's enough. 
He's what makes them clean. That's one reason why I think it's important for us not to differentiate between different sins, bad, good, ugly ones, awful ones, have a scale of sin. They need to come in and meet Jesus. He's the one that starts to clean people up. And we don't have to get all cleaned up before we take a bath. We need to meet Jesus, and then he starts dealing with us, even though sometimes these relationships with Jesus are messy relationships. I'm so glad that Jesus was patient and dealt with my messy relationship. Because when I first came to him, I was young, and I thought I knew a whole lot more than I did. And then he kept dealing with me and showing me that I still had so much growth to go. And I really pray that we'll catch this, that as we want people to come in to hear about the truth of Jesus, we won't cast them out before they have a chance to hear. Uh, years ago, one of the persons that used to go to church right here had gone to a nearby church, and they walked in, and they were dressed kind of like I am. They had blue jeans and a nice shirt, but it was a button-down shirt. And it, they had no tie, no coat, and they had some regular shoes on instead of their Sunday dressy shoes. And somebody actually met them at the door of this church and said, I just think you should know that we believe that we're supposed to dress up for God on Sundays. We want to give him our best. He deserves our best. Now, you know, I appreciate that heart. But they made these people feel like, oh, boy, we really don't fit here, do we? And they went away feeling downtrodden and less than and marginalized. And I just don't see that that's a Jesus kind of treatment. And so I think that... I have this tug of war in my own heart because I want people to know the truth and I want certain people to be changed so that they can gain all that Jesus offers them and I don't want our church to hold them away or push them off until they've had a chance to hear from us what the truth is about Jesus so I can make up their own mind and say, yes, I'm feeling drawn to God too. And then we can let him start changing that and he will. Like C.S. Lewis, I've used this term before. We think he's going to come and hang a picture over here and put up some wallpaper in this room over there. Instead, he comes in with a wrecking ball and takes us right down to the foundation and rebuilds us into a new creation. So we need to make sure that people are aware of that. Say, so just hold on, buckle your seatbelt, because if you're going to follow him, expect some change. It will happen. So Jesus challenges back, and he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. For he wrote, these people... Remember when it's being written, 700 years before Jesus is there. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, which means it's in vain, it's empty, it's hollow, it's worthless. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's laws and substitute your own tradition. He's quoting from Isaiah 29, 13, and notice what Jesus says. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Who was Isaiah writing to when he prophesied? His generation. Which shows me that Jesus can see that prophecies that apply to that generation sometimes also apply to a future generation. And he clearly equates the prophecy that Isaiah had given in his day to his generation. And Jesus was pointing right to the Pharisees and scribes and saying, and this applies to you as well. And I might add, because we are Jesus' followers... Ah, he's also pointing ahead 2,000 more years into our generation, and we could have that finger pointed right at us because this applies to us as well. We have to be very cautious not to slide into doing what those scribes and Pharisees were doing. So it also means that if we fit into this category of believers, this is so contemporary that he's speaking to us today. 
We can't just look down our noses, in other words, like I used to do with Simon Peter when Peter would blurt out something, and oh, that guy, he's always putting his foot in his mouth. You know, the only time he opens his mouth is to change feet. And I, I had that attitude towards Simon Peter until I would be in some conversation with somebody, and I would find myself opening my mouth and inserting foot. And I would think, oh, okay, all right. Lord, it's easy for me to just point my finger at these bad guys in the Bible, but you're still trying to clean me up, and you're still transforming my life, so I still have a long way to go as well. As an example of how Old Testament Israel is there for us, including the good, the bad, and the ugly, there are lessons for us today found in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11. They're there. Paul writes that. He's saying that there are all these things that were happening in the wilderness. They had to go there for a long time because of their sin. They could have made a straight beeline for that, but they wouldn't stop and ask for directions. And Other things were happening because there was sin in their life. And so God provided for them even though they were sinful. And each time they did, even though some bad things happened to them, God was so gracious that he kept forgiving and moving forward. And some people lost their lives. It's a great passage, 1 Corinthians 10. But then he says, but these things, including these negative experiences, which they were responsible for because of their rebellion, are there for us as examples. They're cautionary, true stories. They're not just tales. They're true stories, but they're cautionary for our benefit so we can learn from them. They were there even for those who live at the end of the age, he says in that 1 Corinthians passage. Uh, that would be us. So we need to know, and this is where the balance starts to come in, because if some people grabbed only that much of the message even from today, they could start jettisoning an awful lot of Scripture in their minds and living in freedom. And they would use freedom to just do whatever they feel like doing and thinking, but I'm free in Christ. And Paul says, no, that's not what true freedom is about. We're freed from ancient traditions as Jesus is trying to teach these Pharisees, but we're freed for activity in following Christ, and he's all about holiness and righteousness. And he wants our true heart, and he wants the kind of obedience that makes us want to get up and breathe him in every day and continue to breathe in his spirit. So it's normal for us, as normal as breathing, to walk with Christ through our day. So we think, well, what about these youth? I used to do some... Youth lock-ins, that's a terrible word after pandemic, but we used to call them that. It was like retreats, and they would lock the door in the gym, and we'd have games and Bible studies and stuff. I even did one when Tom was leading some stuff uh, as a volunteer at Packard Road one time. And we would do that for youth, and youth are really quick at picking up on hypocrisy. Have you noticed that? They start to get really... Uh, noticed, they start to notice things about justice when they're about 7th and 8th grade, and then that lasts, it used to last up until they were about 17 or 18, and then they started, and then it started to widen the gap, and they said, man, you could go all the way back to about age 10 and go to about age 20. Now it's like starting at age 7 and going to 35. But they, they can really start pointing out hypocrisy and things that are unjust, like they start reading their Bibles instead of just listening to the sermons. And they would say, well, wait a minute, the Bible says that you're supposed to not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. But Paul says to Timothy, you should have a little wine for that ailment of yours in your stomach. So the Bible doesn't actually expressly say you should be a teetotaler and never put a drop of liquor in your body. So what do they do? As soon as they get out of their controlled parental environment that's been a teetotaling home, they go off to college. Woo-hoo! 
It's party time. And so I, th I think we see this pendulum swing, and Paul kind of notices the same pendulum swing which could happen, and he's giving a little antidote to that because he's starting to give us a few things about true freedom and what it's supposed to be like when we're filled with the Spirit and follow Christ. So true freedom in Galatians 5, and I don't have time to go through that. I urge you to read that. It's really good. Freedom from ancient traditions covers some inner rebellion that may be taking place, but it should not be equated with a license to sin. And Paul gives us this wonderful depiction of what freedom from looks like, but then in the lower part of Galatians 5, he gives all the freedom to. And so we see a balance there in the Apostle Paul's teaching. Yes, we're freed from tradition and legalism, but we're freed for walking with Christ into holiness and righteousness. And we can expect him to start pointing out things that say, no, that's sin, actually. And I can't stand in the presence of sin, so you need to change something. And so we start to see that we're getting transformed. He says, I'll read just two verses from that, Galatians 5. 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and have crucified them there. And since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. And I think that's important as well. Let me close with just a heartfelt appeal to all of you all. I had a, a really rough day one day last week because I had seen a social media post by somebody that I know and love. And it just, oh, it just crushed me because it was a link to an article that allegedly gave biblical proof that we can behave in certain ways that the Bible just expressly says is sin. And I thought, oh, I thought this person knew better than that. I thought that they had been raised in a foundational truth-building kind of family and in a church that taught truth. And all it takes is for one person to start sharing that and for other people to see, even if they don't read the article, but they just see the title and they go, oh, see, I knew that. That's great. Isn't it good to know that we have biblical justification for this? Because I've always wanted to do that. It just crushed me. And so I, I spent a whole day trying to talk it out with Joy. We went for a long drive, took her out with, for some errands so I could talk it out. I was just crushed. It really, it was a spiritual battle, even going on inside my own heart. And I thought, okay, I can react vehemently, and I can push back in a way that's not very Christ-like, or I can love that person, and when I see them and have a chance to speak some truth into their life, I can hopefully compassionately push back on that and say, I hope you know that I love you dearly. And at the very same time, I am really disappointed that you shared that article because I don't believe one bit of it. I think that that article is filled with all kinds of error and bias and poor academic treatment of Scripture. And I, sh I share that because I love you. And isn't it tough that we're living in this era that it's hard for us to find that balance? How do we push back? Because people say, oh, well, you're so mean and you're so rude and you're hateful because you disagree with me. But Jesus is perfectly balanced in being loving and truthful in everything he did. Now, they crucified him for that, so I think we should expect not to necessarily be treated great when we do the same thing. But I still want to do that. And I'm praying for that person who shared that, and I'm praying for a time for me to be able to display my love and truth at the same time about that article. And 
my podcast partner and I, we have two whole followers, I think. <laughs> but we have a little podcast, and we're doing a, see, a season, season five right now on false teachings. And when we get to that specific thing, I'm probably going to see if we can do a, a mini-series and just pick apart every single part of that that was incorrect interpretation of Scripture and deal with the truth. You know, what did Jesus actually say? Because if he quotes this scripture, he believes that's true, and he still believes it's true today. That hasn't changed. So this is wrong. And the Bible clearly teaches this is wrong. So we need to open ourselves up to that instead of just saying, but it feels right. A lot of things feel right. Man, I could eat a whole gallon of Rocky Road ice cream. It feels good. Is that healthy for me? Probably not. So there are a lot of these things that God gives us that if it felt well and we could do it and we can suddenly justify it because of an article that we read and we say there's biblical proof for that, then we could do a lot of things that he has said earlier on, no, this is not healthy for you. I designed this this way on purpose so that you can have life abundant. But you can't live that abundant life if you're separating yourselves apart from my leadership in your life. Can you tell that I'm perplexed and a little bit passionate and driven and a little bit in angst over these situations. I long to share the truth of Christ. And I want people to know him the way I do. And I don't want anything to keep them from that. But I don't want to water down the truth either. I want both. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, even in this passage in Mark chapter 7. Let's pray that he will help us to do that. Father, I feel like uh, sometimes you reveal so much in my life that needs to be given back over to you. And I realize that I can be such a coward and such a wimp by not speaking out when I should. But when I do speak out, I also realize that sometimes I can speak out with the wrong motive or in the wrong spirit. And so there's that balance that you're trying to show us, a good, healthy balance of love and truth. And you, Jesus, are the perfect expression of both. And I pray that we will represent you to the people around us so that they can clearly see and be drawn to the love in Christ that they see in us. They could see you and your character qualities and be drawn to that so that you then can begin that work, that same work that you've begun in us. And I'm grateful, we quote it all the time, that you who began that good work in us will be faithful to complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus. Please do that. Continue that work in me, and I pray that you'll do that in all believers so that we can become a real influence on our world around us. Thank you for doing that. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.